0: I have a guest with me today who has just a fascinating background, and he's involved, well, he's involved in so many projects, but he's involved in one that is near and dear to uh, our heart, and and especially me as a woman cop. We're going to talk a lot more about that, but Mike Barron, welcome
1: to the show. Thank you, Betsy.
0: So, Mike, you, first and foremost, I want to talk about... um, I want to talk about The Punisher. For you folks who love comics and love superheroes, we all know who The Punisher is. Talk about your involvement with that.
1: Well, I I broke into comics in 1981 with our groundbreaking uh, science fiction superhero, Nexus. And because of that, I got work with the majors. Uh, The editor of Punisher at the time was Carl Potts. Uh, And Carl phoned me and said, Mike, I'd like you to write The Punisher, starting with issue number one. Uh, And he said he chose me on the basis of my other character, The Badger, which I also created back in the 80s. And that's still going strong, too. I wrote The Punisher for five years, and I approached it as a straight crime comic. Uh, And for the first three years, there were no superheroes, science fiction, time travel or monsters. Uh, And I was ripping stories out of the headlines as as most writers do, uh, the, one of the early stories had to do with a Jim Jones surrogate uh, and the Punisher goes down to South America and tries to prevent the mass suicide. And there were drug dealers and gun dealers and all sorts of stuff like that. When the first Iraq war, the Gulf War broke out, I, I sent the Punisher uh, into Iraq uh, and that was on the cover and, and nobody said a word at the time and they loved it. The reaction was overwhelming. Uh, about three years later, Carl got kicked upstairs, and we had a new editor who was a gimmick guy, and that's when we started to see the the monsters and and uh, the science fiction, uh, and the gimmick covers, which I kind of like, like the plain brown wrapper ra- uh, cover.
0: So as you're moving forward with the Punisher, and I mean you're so you're a guy who keeps up on what's happening in the world and and all of that, and then. Uh, You know, as time goes on, comics start to get kind of
1: politicized, don't they? Well, it's shocking uh, to the extent that they have been politicized. uh, And this is a fairly recent development. And like uh, most fields in the arts, the the world of comics is overwhelmingly liberal, uh, to misuse that term. and uh, it, it led to a rift right down the center uh, with the, uh, the established uh, players. And they're now circling the drain. They make inexplicable decisions uh, because they forgot the number one rule of comics, the number one rule of writing, at least the type of writing I do, which is it's my job to entertain. And I never lose sight of that fact. And modern comics uh, with their social justice issues and their preaching are no longer entertaining. Uh, and so the sales have plummeted uh, and yet uh, they refuse to make any changes. In fact, they seem to double down on this sort of thing. For instance, Marvel hired ta hesse Coates to write Captain America. ta Hesse Coates is uh, mostly famous for a book he wrote about himself growing up between me and the world, in which he expressed a great deal of, of dissatisfaction with America's racism. Well, I bought Captain America when it came out and I bought another copy five years later. And in my opinion, there was no entertainment value in the comic whatsoever. He has no idea how to tell a story. And the other few uh, major uh, publisher issues that I've looked at are the same. They just, they're not entertaining. And that's the number one rule of entertainment.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's, a, that's, a, the, that's the whole... Um... Uh, theory behind, you know, shut up and dribble, shut up and sing, you know, just entertain me. And I think that's one of the frustrations that people have now is, you know, like like I haven't watched the NFL in five years because I just want to watch football. I don't want to see kneeling. I don't want to talk about racism. I don't want to see the flag disrespected. Same thing with, I don't watch award shows anymore. I used to really be fascinated by that, but now I, I just want to, I just want to learn about, entertainment and I want to be uh, entertained and see who wins awards and things like that. And, and we've gotten so far away from that. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to matter to so many of these people, whether um, uh, money is made, because that's really the whole point of the entertainment industry, right? It's for people to make money. Um, it, it seems that the, the capitalism has become evil in the arts. And, uh, and I don't, is that sustainable, Mike?
1: Well, no, uh, you know where there's a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment in the arts and among my friends uh, on the left. Uh, but capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. Uh, and prior to capitalism, the way people acquired wealth was through uh, looting, plunder, and murder. Uh, I had a great teacher once, his name was Jerry McNeely, and he said, you make them laugh a little bit, you make them cry a little bit, you scare the hell out of them, and that's entertainment. And I've never forgotten that either. Well,
0: now that's what makes you an amazing writer. So so here we, speaking of looting and plundering, um, you have a new project that um, supporters of the Thin Blue Line uh, of law enforcement and also supporters of freedom and free speech are gonna be really interested in. Let's talk about that.
1: Thin Blue Line. I always say I don't choose my stories; my stories choose me. Uh, and watching the riots of 2020, and watching uh, news readers stand in front of cities in flames, in rubble, and saying these are mostly peaceful protests, it uh, caused a great disconnect in my brain, in the brain of most people who can think rationally. And I thought it was the stuff of drama; it was the great stuff of drama. And I was, and I decided to write a story about it about two police officers trying to survive a night of riots in a large Midwestern city. Uh, and it's, it's based on any number of cities you can name. It's based on Chicago and Portland and Minneapolis, but it's its own city. Uh, and as I said, I ripped my stories from uh, the headlines and I did here too. And I don't finger anyone by name, but there are groups in there that you'll recognize. Oh,
0: absolutely. In fact, let's show you Um, just a piece of what this looks like.
2: In the middle of a long, hot summer, a police shooting ignites a city. Activists, opportunists, and provocateurs descend to riot, loot, burn, and kill. Thin Blue Line follows Officer Valeria Baca and her partner as their detail guarding the mayor turns into a battle for survival. Ride along on this harrowing tale of two brave law enforcement officers fighting for their community and their own survival in a world gone mad. Eisner winner, Mike Barron, has created a moving and entertaining story ripped straight from today's headlines. Now we're asking you to join the effort to distribute it independently and help support the men and women of law enforcement. Get your copy of the only graphic novel to offer an unflinching look Men and women of law enforcement during a time when we need them the most. Not all heroes wear capes. Thin Blue Line by Mike Barron on Indiegogo.
0: So, Mike, that, that was just amazing. And of course, I, I resonate, you know, because I'm a police officer, also because I'm a Midwest girl. Um, and, Me uh, too. and yeah, and you're so your characters there. Um, Talk about your characters. First, let's look at the the female police officer. Who's the main character? And, uh, and, you know, she's got a male partner. Um, She's a mom. Talk about her, because she's just amazing. Uh,
1: Valeria Baca is her name. And she was inspired to be a police officer by her great-great-grandfather, Ilfago Baca, who was a real character. He was a sheriff in the Southwest. In fact, Disney had a series about him for many years. Why did I choose her? You know, I don't know. Uh, As I say, sometimes my characters choose me, Uh, but I started with her in her private life. So we don't plunge right into the drama. We see her testing for her purple belt in jujitsu. And one of her fellow officers is uh, part of the club who's judging her. And from there she goes home and we meet her daughter uh, and uh, then her partner, Bob Mack, picks her up. They've been assigned to protect the mayor because riots are sweeping the city. And the reason there are riots is because there was a report of a police shooting. That's all we know. There are no details whatsoever. We don't know the officer involved or the circumstances or the victim who was shot. We know nothing about that. And neither do the crowds that descend on the city. It's just a good excuse for them to demonstrate riot and pillage. And as we all know, you know, as we've all seen, all those people out there running into stores and running out with their arms full of goods, they're not making a political statement.
0: No, what they're doing is just being opportunistic criminals. And, you know, as, as a uh, politician from New York City famously said uh, last year during the 2020 riots, oh, they're just trying to feed their family. They're just looking for bread. Uh, no. There's no (laughs) other thing that no one was looting uh, loaves of bread.
1: The other thing that made me do this was politician after politician calling to defund the police. Uh, And it just seems so insane to me. It's like saying, stop drinking water. Uh, You're either for the rule of law or you're not. That's the bottom line. And that's the message of this book, aside from message number one, which is to entertain. uh, And it just seemed bizarre to me that people who hold elected office uh, would call for defunding the police and of course today they all deny they say it and yet uh, some people have put together video clips of politician after politician calling to defund the police. Every one of these politicians never worries about where their paycheck is coming from. Every one of them enjoys armed security details.
0: Yes, very often private armed security that their campaigns pay for while they're trying to defund the police and by the way who are those security details primarily off-duty or retired police officers so it's protection for me not for thee that's right now so you so here you are you know because you're just you know you're this incredible writer but but when we're talking about a graphic novel you've got to take the writing and somebody's got to draw these characters that you're envisioning, right?
1: Yes. I've known uh, Joe, Joe Arnold for many years. He was part of a little group of comic book uh, people that would meet at my house once a month. Uh, and Joe was always drawing. This was, this was years before he joined the police force, but after he was discharged uh, from the army, I think he was army airborne. Uh, and Joe had always been trained in jujitsu as well. Uh, And so I approached Joe to draw this, and he was all for it, Uh, and he drew the whole book, which is 56 pages long, uh, faster than many full-time industry pros, while working full-time as a police officer. Now, you saw a little interview with Joe. Joe is a man of few words. Uh, It's hard to get him to speak, but he spoke a lot on that interview, and he spoke for himself, and I thought it was great, Uh, and one of the things I've always tried to do in my books Uh, the comics, is to portray martial arts in a realistic and dynamic manner. Uh, Because when I was growing up reading comics, I would read Karate Kid and and Master of Kung Fu, hoping to catch a glimpse of real martial arts, but I never did, because they don't know anything about martial arts, the people who wrote and do these comics. Uh, So I set about on a quest to change that, Uh, and every book that I've uh, written, including Uh, the Bruce Lee comic I did for Malibu and my own Badger, we show martial arts in a dynamic and entertaining manner as they unfold. And I don't mean just a fist or kick, but things like joint locks and throws and how you have to position yourself to make it work. Uh, And I think that's part of the entertainment.
0: Now, I'm so curious. and I think people are too. How do you take a story like, you know, you did about Valeria and Bob and how do you work with that artist to make your characters truly come to life because when you look at these drawings they're amazing i mean valeria and bob are um you know they're not cape wearing freakish superheroes they are realistic police officers and and again not just police officers but you you and joe managed to capture the the personal side of them which is extraordinary and i i think it's really rare and you neither you know you you don't you didn't make them into these larger than life characters you guys made them incredibly realistic talk about that process
1: Well, I write full script, but my scripts are very terse. They're not verbose at all. And I give visual descriptions that are foolproof. I go over a script many times before I let it out of the house. And of course, uh, Joe, being a practitioner himself, knows how to draw those techniques so they look realistic and dynamic. Uh, How do you grab uh, a reader's attention? Because the essential question in all fiction is what happens next? And in order for the reader to turn the page, he has to care. Well, how do you make the reader care? Well, one of the main roles is uh, to create a sympathetic character that the reader cares about, Uh, and it's the writer's job to imagine the point of view of every character in everything he writes, no matter how distant from his own experience. Should Shakespeare have been allowed to write Othello? These are the type of questions that are sweeping through college campuses now, and they're absurd on the face of it because writing is an act of an imagination. And a good imagination will identify with any point of view from the most saintly to the most despicable. Uh, William Styron wrote The Confessions of Nat Turner, which was a literary triumph, putting himself in the point of view of a 19th century slave. Uh, And uh, Alexander Dumas wrote The Three Musketeers. Should Alexander Dumas have been allowed to write The Three Musketeers? He was Haitian.
0: right and that and you know this is a thing and i think that that uh, well let me let me just ask this um, what kind of feedback including pushback have you gotten for embracing this topic and presenting it in the way that you have in both your writings and in joe's um, uh,
1: art well we we often say that there's an unofficial blacklist at many publishers and I know this for a fact because I've written to publishers and gotten scathing letters in return uh, that the traditional publishers are, are, as I said, they're no longer interested in entertainment uh, and I've gotten hate mail from all over the world for various reasons. Uh, uh, but that's not my problem because I'm not appealing to that audience. We have a whole new audience. Part of it's the same old audience whose first desire is to be entertained. They want a book that they can lose themselves in. And that's something that I do. As I said, my number one rule of of writing is it's my job to entertain and I never lose sight of that fact. Number two is show don't tell, which sounds easy on the face of it, but it's not so easy as as you see when you get into the weeds of writing this stuff. And that applies to straight prose as well as to comics. Uh, But I try to transmit as much Uh, of the story visually as I can without using words, Uh, because it's a visual medium. Anybody who's watched Better Call Saul knows what I'm talking about, because they often begin with a wordless segment that's just fascinating. And when you get to the end of that segment, you say, oh, I see. I know exactly what's going on. And the third rule, of course, is to be original. And and we're all unique human beings. And anybody who's a good writer is going to necessarily bring their worldview and experience into what they write.
0: Well, and I'll tell you, as I was looking at at some of these drawings, um, it, it they do put the reader right in the middle of those riots, you know. And again, like you said, we had pundits saying, "Oh, these are mostly peaceful," as as you know, targets burning down behind them, and and uh, police precincts are being set fire to, and things like that. Um, but. And I would encourage people to, we'll talk about where they can find you in a minute, but um, well, I'll tell you, just looking at it, I was really, you can smell the smoke and you can feel the fear that uh, we know that thousands of police officers felt during those horrible riots. I mean, you really, uh, you and Joe were really able to capture that and I just find that extraordinary.
1: Well, thank you.
0: You know, so where um, where do you see this project moving forward? Because there I think there are so
1: many stories that you could tell. Um, well, while you know, trying to stay out of the
0: politics,
1: right? We're, yeah, we're, we're crowdfunding the project, uh, as you know, and that's and one reason I'm making the rounds of this thing, because uh, uh, the more successful crowdfunding projects are done with well-known illustrators who often write their own material, and the, uh, the, the market for them is overwhelmingly uh, superhero science fiction or horror, uh, so we're kind of bucking the trend. But one thing I promise you is that this comic is is as entertaining as any comic you've ever written. You won't be able to put it down. And when you're done with it, you're going to turn to somebody next to you and say, you got to read this, because it's that kind of story. I have no platform in there. I'm simply uh, showing the world as I have seen it through my own eyes and through the eyes of these people that I imagine. I'm particularly proud of the mayor I created. I think you'll all recognize him. and the situations in that uh, touched on everything that was going on last summer, in, including uh, the pandemic uh, and the dilemma of police officers who, who no longer feel that their department is supporting them and what they're going to do. Uh, but I also try to imagine every point of view. And there's some surprising characters in there that are not on the left uh, who may be up to no good.
0: And now, have you gotten any uh, pushback on social media
1: No, I I haven't noticed it. In fact, my Twitter numbers uh, have been rising slowly but steadily ever since we started this campaign. Uh, But again, I want to stress that the main purpose of the book is to entertain. One of the reasons I I wrote this, aside from my astonishment that that people would call for defunding the police, was that I know a number of police officers and and they're overwhelmingly uh, civic-minded people who join the force because they want to serve.
0: Mike Barron, that is absolutely so well said. What's your Twitter handle? Um, where can people
1: find you? On Twitter, it's at Bloody Red Baron. I'm on Facebook as uh, Mike Barron. That's my author's page. And I have a page called the, nov- the Comics and Novels of Mike Barron. I also have a Substack column. It's mikebarron.substack.com. And I have my own web page, which is kind of lying moribund. we're, we're going to revive it shortly. It's called bloodyredbaron.com.
0: Mike Barron, you are a busy guy, and we so appreciate you spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Do put the
1: gun down!